Hello, and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your host each week. We're delighted that you've joined us. This is now the world's largest distributed and subscribed to leadership podcast in the world. And occasionally, when one of our guests gets a remarkable amount of downloads and listens and questions, we tend to invite them back. In fact, only two guests outside of Franklin Covey have we invited back onto the podcast. The first was the acclaimed author and neuroscientist, Dr. Daniel Amen. And the second is the number one best-selling author, Liz Wiseman, of the book Multipliers. Liz Wiseman, welcome back to your second conversation on leadership. Oh, Scott, it's good to be here. It's great to see you. How are you and your family thriving in the quarantine? I know you're in California. Occasionally you're here in Utah. Everybody healthy and sane? Everyone is healthy and sane. And I tell you one of the things I've learned is I do not miss my relationship with airplanes. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. You, yeah. In fact, I like, I like, I, I, I want to help and support the airline industry, right? But I, I like you, I'm delighted to be off of them. Much of your career the last decade has not just been writing and researching, but speaking around the world. You're one of the most prolific speakers on the global leadership stage. You were speaking, uh, I crisscross. You and Stephen Amar Covey are probably two of the most booked keynote speakers in the world. So we're delighted to have you off a plane for a couple of months and joining us virtually from your home today in California. Now, Liz, when you joined us last, you were one of our first leadership interviews on the podcast. Gosh, about 120, yeah, 120 interviews or so. And since then, you and I developed a little bit of a friendship. As most people know, if you follow me on social media, if anybody reads any of my books or my columns, Rink Magazine, you know I find a way to work the learnings from multipliers into every podcast interview that I do. I always give you credit, but I'm such a fan of your work that that early friendship between you and I transitioned over to our chairman and to our executive team. And through a lot of work and a lot of discussions, you and Franklin Covey have formalized a relationship where now Franklin Covey has licensed the um, ability to offer your leadership content drawn from multipliers into our all access pass. Would you take just a minute and talk about kind of how that alliance and that partnership came to fruition and what you're expecting out of it? Well, you know, we, we found over the years that the idea of multipliers has resonated around the world. And it's, it's the, the opportunities to rid the world of bad bosses and build the kind of leaders that really ignite intelligence and genius and innovation in organizations. It was just, it was bigger than we could handle. And as we were looking for a partner who could who had the, the, the chops in leadership and strategy and execution. We, you know, Franklin Covey was really the obvious partner for us because you have such a strong presence all around the world and because you've been building leadership for how many years now? We're about 40 years in the company. Yeah, and it, you know, it just felt like a good partnership. We spent about a year developing it. And as we spent the last year building out a solution, I've just become more and more convinced that this is a perfect partnership. So I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to be working with Franklin Covey. We are equally as thrilled. And I know that Dr. Stephen R. Covey, our co-founder, was one of the, I think he wrote the forward for your book. And although he's passed about eight years from now, how delighted Dr. Covey would be to know that not only are you on the On Leadership podcast guest, or our guest now twice, but that we are partnering with you to bring multipliers to all of our all Access Pass members around the world. So let's talk a little bit about some of the multipliers content today. Um, everyone knows I'm a raving fan of the concept that you've popularized called, you know, don't be the genius, rather be the genius maker. This had a profound impact on me and my own leadership career. It's one of the reasons, Liz, why I stepped aside from being the chief marketing officer where I was for eight years the leader of about 40 people. I then became the executive vice president of thought leadership because what I realized in reading your book was that although I have a lot of multiplying tendencies, I have a lot of um, accidental diminishing tendencies. And one of them was as the idea guy. I think it's since been renamed as the idea fountain. But as I read the book, instead of naturally thinking outward, well, so-and-so is a diminisher and so-and-so is a diminisher, I had a bit of a collective um, uh, breath where I said, goodness, I have a lot of 
accidental diminishing techniques, tendencies, and I need to work on them. Would you talk a little about a bit about the theory, orient our listeners and viewers to what is a multiplier, what is an axonal diminisher, and it's not one or the other, what's kind of the journey we're all on from one to the other? Yeah, let me give you kind of an overview of what I've been studying and teaching for the last 10 years is it began with this observation or really a question, why are we so smart and capable around some leaders, but then around other leaders, we hold back and we play it safe and we end up really giving only a fraction of our true capability, I ended up calling those leaders diminishers. We've all worked around them. You know what they're like. They're, they're often really smart, really capable, but when they walk into a room, people tend to hold back. They, they get quiet. And, and sometimes it's because this leader just takes up so much space, is a domineering, know-it-all, maybe even a bit of a, a, a tyrant, but often, people were holding back around these leaders because they were just so capable and in some ways so proactive. And, and they, you know, everyone just defaulted them and looked at them. And, and I studied the diminishing dynamic and found that these diminishing leaders tend to get only half of people's available intelligence. And by that, I mean knowledge, skills, um, creativity, insights, your ability to adapt, your ability to innovate. So you know, the first realization was that companies were working so hard to bring in top talent, paying them at full market value, and then only really harvesting half of that capability. And so it was this incredible economic waste, but it also creates a workplace where people were um, frustrated and exhausted and disengaged. And we've all seen that disengagement research then I, I noticed another type of leader who was equally smart and capable, but they had a very different effect on people. These leaders be, became multipliers to others. They used their own intelligence in a way that other people kind of like leaned forward, um, you know, offered bold ideas, took, you know, smart risks, um, adapted, you know, they, they kind of filled in that space. They took on challenges and and I noticed people did their very best thinking and their best work around these multiplier leaders. So that was the first kind of idea was that these multipliers were getting twice the intellectual capability of people on their team. It's very significant. But then the second finding was the one that was so startling and maybe the one that has resonated, Scott, with you and with, with me and lots of others is that most of the diminishing, and it's over 60% of the diminishing that we see in the workplace, is what I call accidental. Coming from the well-intended leader, the person who really enjoys being a manager, cares about her team, wants to bring out the best in everyone, but that sometimes these leaders were playing so big or being helpful that other people just didn't need to step up. Other people kind of got weak around these leaders because the leaders were too strong in certain areas. And um, I think one of the surprises for me, Scott, has been the reaction that you had. I expected when I wrote the book that a lot of people would say, oh, multiplier diminisher, yeah, my boss is a huge diminisher, he's a diminisher, she's a diminisher. But what I have found is that when people read this book and are exposed to the ideas, they tend to look inside. Like, wow, how might, how might I actually be diminishing others with the best of intentions, actually? Liz, I think it is the best leadership book authored in the last decade. I have no credibility when it comes to Six Sigma or Lean Manufacturing. When it comes to leadership and books, I got a little bit of street cred. Been in this business myself 30 years, authored a few myself. I think what you've hit on there is it gives permission for leaders at all levels to show a little bit of humility, a little bit of insightfulness, introspection on how are you accidentally diminishing others from what might be some of your own strengths. What I'd like to do is take a few moments and walk through these nine accidental diminishing tendencies. They're, they're fundamental to Franklin Covey's new one-day offering. In fact, I mentioned it in our, in our opening, Franklin Covey now has actually created a one-day work session for leaders at all levels 
that allows us to license the content from the book in the All Access Pass. In addition to great videos, tools, assessments, and a workbook, there also are these great cards. And I want to spend maybe a couple of minutes on each of these nine accidental diminishing tendencies. And for our listeners and viewers, I'd maybe encourage you to think introspectively around which of these might you need to work on as you're moving towards being more of a multiplier. Uh, resist the temptation to our audience to think about your boss or your spouse or someone like that. Think about yourself and how can you move. The first one, uh, if you... If I can- if I could jump in before we go through, I would actually encourage people to not only think about themselves, think about their bosses. Part of the challenge is we look at some of our bosses and we see these diminishing tendencies. It actually helps us to deal with it better when we realize most of it's accidental. Yes. Like your boss is not out to get you. Like she wasn't trying to shut you down in that meeting. You know, he isn't trying to hog all the glory. It's always they're just wound up tight about something. And so seeing it as accidental actually helps. So see it in yourself, see it in others, but yeah, let's jump in. I think it's a great point because it doesn't necessarily mean you have to think about them more critically, but better understand why they might be behaving the way they're doing, right? As a Right. Uh, and and seeing this difference between our best intent and the impact we have on others. You know, if I've really spent my career studying anything, it's studying what happens in this gap between what we intend to do as leaders versus how we're received by others. And the gap is pretty big. And really looking into that gap is how we learn how to be these multiplier leaders, how to bring out the best in others. Okay, let me run through them real quick, one through nine, and then we'll take a minute on each. These are the nine accidental diminishing tendencies. Idea fountain, always on, rescuer, pace setter, rapid responder, optimist, protector, strategist, and perfectionist. Now, Liz, prior to us joining um, each other on today's podcast, I actually sent a text out to all members of the Franklin Covey executive team and asked, hey, which of these nine diminishing tendencies do you think you have the most uh, around? And so our, our CEO, Bob Whitman, and chairman responded back, as did our CFO, both of our company presidents, and four of the executive vice president. So I might actually, um, with their permission, use them as an example as they're also trying to integrate this into their own leadership lives. Let's talk about Idea Fountain. This is where I found the most resonance to where resonance where I tend to diminish because I think for the better part of my 25-year career here at Franklin Covey, one of my strongest assets has been Scott's creativity, sort of his extemporaneous ability to draw upon all that I've read, all that I've learned, And for many years of my career, it was helpful. And then it became a bit of a distraction. It hit a tipping point probably three or four years ago, maybe five years ago, when we were trying to do fewer things better and and really becoming a more disciplined organization where Scott's creativity became a diminishing asset. It was a distraction. Now you were chasing 30 of Scott's ideas versus saying no to 29 not that all my ideas were used in the company, but I really began to be a little more self-aware that my font of energy and creativity was becoming um, a liability, not an asset, not just for me, but for the firm. Talk about the idea fountain. Well, this is one that I have a lot of credibility talking about because I suffer from this one as well. Scott, you and I are, are really, you know, coupling the same cloth here is the idea fountain is a creative, innovative thinker, and they want an innovative environment for everyone. That's what's really important to understand here is they want this, like, they want to come to work where, like, ideas are just popping up and people are being creative and thinking of new ways. And so they they get that party started by, by suggesting things. Hey, how about this? What about this? I was thinking about this. Why don't we try that? And and they their, their intent is to create a creative environment to get other people thinking. But what happens when we are a fountain of ideas? Uh, One of two things. Either we overactivate people, like, okay, Scott's got 30 ideas, and now people are running around chasing those ideas, making a millimeter of progress in in dozens of directions. And at the end of the day, they're exhausted, and they think, you know what? I, I end up making no progress at the end of the day, so why don't I just stay here instead of chase ideas? You know, they're on a, a, a wild goose chase. Or they underactivate people because, hey, if 
if I need a creative idea and let's say I work for Liz or Scott or someone like that, well, either I can dig down deep and think creatively or I just walk down the, the hallway to the fountain of ideas because that fountain is going off every hour. So I'll just get my ideas there. You know, we, we become idea lazy around people who are idea rich. Liz, I, think I struggle with this one. I've had to learn, like, I'll tell you my little workaround for this one. Um, and for anyone who's listening, if you're a bit of an idea fountain, what I've learned to do is uh, just really it involves a piece of paper and a filter. It's, I ask myself, Liz, do you want your team to stop what they're doing and work on this idea that you have right now or not? And usually 95% of the time it's or not. And I wait and I save it for a staff meeting or a brainstorming session. Or sometimes I just say, okay, I just got a bunch of ideas. I don't want you to do anything with it, but like, you know, humor me. And sometimes that's all it takes to minimize that accidental diminisher tendency. Liz, I think what I found was that it's how I received my validation. It's how that I felt valued, appreciated, was sharing a non stop fount of ideas. What I think I love most about the one day work session are these rich tools in the cards. So for example, on each of these diminishers, we don't just diagnose them. You actually talk about how can you better get your arms around this axonal diminishing tendency. For example, your intention, as you mentioned, when you are an idea fountain, is that for your ideas to stimulate the ideas in others. That's your intention. Their experience, however, to quote the card, is that the flood of ideas overwhelms others who either then shut down or constantly chase the newest idea, like you mentioned. And then you offer in the card some warning signs for the idea fount. Um, one is that you're offering more ideas than anybody else, quantifiably. Second, that you enjoy it when others appreciate the ideas that you bring to the table. And that's when I found out, oh, this is how I get validation. This is how I feel like I'm contributing is when others appreciate and validate all of my ideas. And then last, it's people aren't sure which of my ideas to act on, so I just create this giant locomotive train that's going in 15 different directions. What advice would you give people who are identifying with being an idea fountain to not diminish their creativity, but to make sure they're not creating a rat race for people? Well, it's one, like, keep to your percentage. If you're in a meeting of five people, one-fifth of those ideas at maximum should be coming from you as a leader. But, you know, I think the more deeper shift is to shift out of the mode of ideating and offering ideas for others to implement and, and to use all that creative energy to ask a good question. Yeah. Yeah. Because what we want, like what the idea guy, you know, what the idea found really wants is they want a creative environment. I mean, sometimes we want validation, but we really want others to be thinking. And that's best done when the leader asks a question that gets other people thinking rather than offers an idea that other people don't entirely know how to implement. So it's shifting your role. And that is one of the most fundamental shifts people make on this journey to being more of a multiplier or creating more multiplier moments in a given workday is, is asking the questions and letting your team find the answers. We'll come back to that at the end because I think as you look at what the solution offers, the one day work session offers, one of the four components of creating a multiplier effect is in fact, like you said, asking better questions. Let's move to to diminisher tendency number two, always on. Talk about that. Oh, always on. Just a ball of energy. These are people who are always present, always contributing, always something to say. You know, as a kid, they were probably like in school in kindergarten class, the one that just every time the teacher asked a question, like they raised their hand, they'd like always contributing. And they think that their energy you know, like they're bringing energy fundamentally. That's what they're doing. And they think that that energy is contagious. Like they're kind of like exciting their team. Like, woo! And well, wait, what stop right there. Them, stop right there. I'm winning. I'm two for two. This is great. 
You know, some people, I, I feel a butt coming. I feel a butt right now. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a butt with all these. And that's what's so interesting about these accidental diminisher tendencies is they all come from a place of good intent. And, you know, they want, like the always on leader just wants to be part of an energetic work environment. Like who doesn't? But when it's the leader bringing the energy, other people don't really need to. Like they're kind of bringing enough energy for everyone. Um, you know, so they think that their energy is contagious, but actually what happens is people, this is what people say around them. Oh, it's draining. Like you're killing me with all this energy. And, and not only do they kind of operate like a wet blanket on the energy of others, it's, it's far more interesting than that is that they shut down others with their energy. They don't activate them. They innervate them. But other people shut them down. And that's what's so fascinating because we can't handle so much energy. And, you know, I think we all know what happens when you are working with an always-on boss or colleague. And that person is walking down the hallway toward your office, coming up to your workstation. There is a universal reaction to this. And it's kind of like, you know, duck and cover. You know, some people are pulling out their cell phones, trying to look really busy. But people don't like to make eye contact with these leaders, you know, for fear that they're going to activate them and they don't know how to get them off. So, so what happens is they shut down others and others are tuning them out. But these leaders become white noise. And, you know, Scott, you've mentioned um, that I do a lot of speaking. I know you do as well. You know that image of when somebody is like on stage talking and their microphone is turned off and they don't know it? You know, they're like, blah, 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 and nobody hears them. That's what happens with the always on leader. I'm depressed. Um, <laughs> but I'm winning because I'm two for two. Uh, what I like about the card deck, again, these tools are so useful because you say the warning signs for the always-on leader are, I often restate important points for emphasis. I'm always engaged and energetic, and I have more energy when I'm speaking than when I'm listening. I think what participants will take away from this work session is a remarkable level of self-awareness. Liz, you've done you know, nearly 20 years of research. This is not your only book. You have other books. You've written books in the queue as well. What have you learned around the correlation between self-awareness and those leaders that go on to be probably um, multiplying leaders? I'm guessing there's a big connection there. You know, it's funny. I, in my previous life, I ran corporate education for Oracle University. So I come from a training mentality. And so like my knee-jerk reaction to everything is, oh, give people the skills they need to be good leaders. And what I found is that it really, that helps, but it has to start with awareness. Sometimes it's just giving people the awareness, helping people see the gap between their best intentions and then the impact that they right. have on others. Yeah. Like just peering into that space, you're like, oh, I do that. And, and sometimes it's just a very simple workaround. Um, like with always on, one of my favorite workarounds is say it once, say it well, and then be done. And people will hear you more. It's like, you know, playing fewer, fewer chips. The other thing I've noticed, and I think this is the real, if there's some magic to this multipliers concept, here's what I think it is is it gets a conversation started. Is that people get exposed to the idea, exposed to this idea of being an accidental diminisher. Hmm, makes it a little bit easier for yeah. us to see. Right. But what really it does is it makes it easier for us to talk about. Like I think the healthiest organizations are the ones that can talk very openly about people's accidental diminisher tendencies. And Scott, maybe it's one of the many reasons why I just adore talking to you and working with you is because you love to talk about your accidental diminisher tendencies. And sometimes leaders don't even need to change their behavior, they just need to change the conversation. So if everyone on my team knows that I'm a fountain of ideas, then people be, can be like, Liz, Liz, do you want us to do something about these things or are you just having like an idea party? 
I'm like, oh, I'm having an idea party. They're like, great. You know what? We're just going to watch and then we're going to ignore you. How about that? I'm like, you know, that would be great. You know, then I get to have my ideas, maybe feel a little bit validated for it. And then people go on their way. And, and it's the same thing if someone has another one and always on, which is like, whoa, you know, actually we've, we've heard, we like, we feel your energy, but... And so it's starting the conversation that creates, I think, the transformation inside organizations. So it's awareness plus having it out in the air, public awareness. And in some ways, I don't even need people to, to get rid of their accidental diminisher tendencies. I just want people to talk about them and then work around them, laugh about them even. Yeah. Liz, I had some good I news. I want to go away. Liz, I had some good news and some bad news. Oh, let's hear the, well, what, what's first? The good, well, the good the news is I'm, I'm three for three, rescuer. The bad news is I think I'm three for three. Accidental <laughs> diminisher tendency number three, the rescuer. Take us down that path. Oh, the rescuer, a big hearted leader. They love their people. They care about people. And you know, they're warm leaders. Here's, here's where it goes wrong. They want people to be successful more than anything. They want people around them to succeed. Like these are great intentions, but when people start to struggle and there's always, you know, a, a point in a project where somebody is starting to struggle, where things aren't going as well. And when that rescuer leader, that big heart leader sees the struggle, it's irresistible to them and they step in and and they help. Now, it's not even like this huge takeover, like da-da-da, I'm here to save the day, you know, I'm coming in, look at me, rescue me, the team needs me. That's more overt diminishing. This is subtle. It's extending a hand of help. But what, but you know, Scott, like what happens when a leader is helpful too early or too often? What happens to their team? I mean, the performance cycle like gets aborted, like, you know, and, and I always find like the, the, the richest learning always comes in like getting something not to 95% done, but to a hundred percent done. Like that last 5%, that's the hard part. That's where the learning comes. But when the leader comes in to rescue, the, the empowerment that they gave, the, the ownership they gave, they've just pulled it back. They've, they've um, like arrested that learning process and they've rendered someone kind of helpless and in many ways humiliated. It's sort of a learned helpful helplessness. Um, you know, we think that we're being helpful. I remember Scott once I was, um, I had a, someone new on my team and um, I'd asked him to do this kind of complicated analysis and he just wasn't getting going with it and he wasn't making progress and I became concerned. And so I would like give him little pointers and oh, would it be helpful if I walked you through some of the algorithms for this? And, and at one point, this is probably like day three or four, he says, Liz, you know, I think I know what I need from you. I'm like, oh, great. You know, I could hardly wait to help. And because um, I wanted him to be successful. And he said, you know what? I think what I need is just a little less help. <laughs> like, oh, well, I'm hurting more than I'm helping. Like, he can't get going because I'm all over this. And so, you know, we are often most helpful as leaders when we don't, when when we let people, and maybe this is going to be hard for some people to hear, but I find that the best leaders have learned how to tolerate suffering and not their own suffering. They've learned to tolerate other people's suffering. And of course, I don't mean, you know, non-empathetic. I mean, letting people work it out, like fight it out, figure it out for themselves. It's counterintuitive. You know, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because... Prior to me having read your book and going through the one-day work session, I would have thought, well, but my job is to help you, not rescue you, but help you. It comes across as rescuing because I want to save you from yourself. I want to help protect your brand. I want to protect my brand. So as a leader, you tend to rush in to rescue, and it's well-intended. But to your point, it interrupts the, the breakthrough in learning and skill development for the other person. Yeah, you know, Scott, another thing we hear a lot is we hear it's a leader's job to remove obstacles. How often do we hear that? I'm skeptical that that's a leader's job. I, I think 
if there are obstacles people absolutely can't remove on their own, maybe they're, you know, big political or yeah. financial kind of obstacles in an organization, maybe. But I think you want to leave a lot of those obstacles in place. That's how people learn. And, you know, you often see, I worked in, you know, Oracle's HR organization for a number of years, and and I managed, you know, very large teams myself. And you would see these performance gaps where you have these superstar leaders, but not a lot of bench strength on their team. And part of that is because they've rescued people. They've removed the obstacle. They're out doing all the hard work and no one else has to. In fact, you know, Scott, I have to say, I got some very bad leadership advice early on in my career, which somebody pointed out turned out to be great leadership advice because it kind of led to multipliers. But my first manager, when I first became a manager, he said to me, Liz, your job is to do everything that is important. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. I'm the manager. Hard, okay, and new. And so you can imagine what happened. You know, I'm off doing all of the hard work, all the work with the rich um, nutrients for learning. And then I've got my team sort of executing. Like, that's not a sustainable way of working. I figured out, you know, a few months in, like, oh, that was really bad advice. Where were you 20 years ago in my career, Liz Wiseman? <laughs> okay, I'm going to speed it up. Uh, axle diminisher number four, pace setter. Talk about that. Uh, this is actually one of the most prevalent ways we see people diminish with the best of intentions. This is the achievement-oriented leader. They're driven, um, and they're leading by example. Okay, now how often have we been told that that we should like we should be out there modeling the way? So let's say there's a new initiative, and in. maybe it's cost control or customer service. We're gonna be really focused on our customers. So these leaders get out ahead of their team and they, they show what that looks like. Okay, I'm gonna spend time in the field with customers. I'm gonna write up my findings from the, the customer meetings. And their logic is I'm gonna get out ahead, show people like what we should be doing, how fast, you know, how aggressively we should be doing it. And other people will notice what I'm doing though, and they'll follow. Like they become pace setter cars and other people will follow. That's the logic. It's not what tends to happen. When the leader gets out ahead of, of his team, other people tend to watch. Like, wow, check him out. Look at Scott, look at like what he's doing. And when we lead by setting the pace, we tend to create spectators rather than followers. Yeah. You know, people are wanting to help, but they don't know how to catch up. In fact, you mentioned the warning signs are, People struggle to keep up with my pace of work. I introduce new techniques more often than I learn from others. And finally, I find it personally unacceptable to fall behind no matter the reason, because I think we're all modeling what we want to see in other people. Whether or not we think we are pace setting, we are setting the model, the standard, the quality, the speed, and others want to keep up with the boss. That's just probably a good a uh, good methodology to, ex to acknowledge that's in most organizations, right or wrong. Mm. Yeah, you know, I got uh, some stinging feedback on this years ago. It was when I was working at Oracle and I had just hired a new um, senior manager on my management team and it was his first day at work and one of my buddies, Ben Putterman, who I worked with for like 10 years at Oracle, knew me very well. He pulls the guy aside and he's like, hey, let me give you some advice. He says, whatever you do, he was like warning him about the boss. He says, whatever you do, don't try to keep up with this. And I'm like, wow. See, I should be struggling trying to keep up with my team. Like you want to be in an organization where the leaders are kind of cool as cucumbers, but everyone else is running around like they got their, their hair on fire. Like you want like to be struggling to keep up with your team. And I was doing kind of the opposite. It's one that I've learned to, to pull back. Liz, I think in my own 30 years in the leadership business, 25 here at the Franklin Covey Company and about four prior to that at the Walt Disney Company, I think the biggest... I've I learned, did not know you had been at the yeah, Walt Disney Yeah, four years with Disney. They invited me to leave, but that's a different podcast series. I think the two most profound things that I've learned in my 30 years are, one from Dr. Covey, the idea of having an efficient mindset versus an effective mindset. They're not bad, it's not versus, just there's different times to employ efficiency and effectiveness. And the second most profound thing I learned is from you, 
is this concept of being the genius in the room versus the genius maker of others. The first 22 years of my career at Franklin Covey, I thought my job as a leader was to be the smartest person in the room. And perhaps people think I'm a Cro-Magna now, right? But it took me a long time to realize that my job was to recruit and retain talent, talent that was noticeably, palpably, visibly more talented than me, to be secure enough, to be humble enough, vulnerable enough to actually be a talent magnet for people that ran circles around me in their own respective areas. And for me, it was a massive paradigm shift for me to realize my job isn't as the chief marketing officer to be the expert in SEO or Google Analytics or marketing automation. My job is to clear the path, mentor, coach, recruit, retain, help when needed. But I think it was, a, it was probably an epiphany professionally for me when I realized my role is not to be intimidated by talent. My job is to gravitate towards it and seek it out and to really lift those people. Your book gave me permission to check my vulnerability and realize what my real contribution was at Franklin Covey, and that was at the age of about 49. Mm. Well, and you know, I think what we're trying to do is help those of us who are at that stage of our career to reorient and to help people get off to that kind of start, which is, and, and for me, it's a mathematical argument, Scott, which is, you know, as a leader, it's so easy to want to be the expert, to be the know-it-all, the genius, to kind of model the way. But when a leader gets 10% better, like compare that with a leader helping everyone on their team, let's say there are 10 people on the team, get 10% better. See, this is simple, simple math. You know, in some ways, a lot of people who are accidental diminishers are simply well-intended leaders who are working too hard. And they're taking too much responsibility themselves. Um, you know, in some ways, every one of these accidental diminisher tendencies, I know you've got more to, to cover, Scott, is, is a virtue and something you want on the team. We want, you know, people out there driven, achievement-oriented. We want them doing the thing, but sometimes to get the whole team um, ideating, the leader needs to do less of it. You know, if you want an optimistic organization, a hopeful can-do optimistic organization, sometimes a leader needs to do a little less of it to create just enough of a, a vacuum or a space so that their team can do more of it. You want it in the culture. You want it in the air, in the water. And sometimes a leader has to hold back just a little bit. Liz, what do you say to the the leader that says, that's so naive. In my organization, if I am not always on fount of knowledge, pace setter, setting the standard, if I choose to be the genius maker of others, I will lose my job because the organization will say, well, why do we need you if we have this team around you? I'm gonna guess there are cultures out there where it is risky to be a multiplying leader. Oh, absolutely, and there are people who are saying like, they don't just hint at it. They come out and say, hey, I want to be this kind of leader, but I'm afraid that I will be seen as a, an empty suit Yeah. In, in so many words. And, and I think herein lies a little bit of a misunderstanding of the job of a multiplier leader. It's not to be this um, empty-headed, non-contributing like servant of the group. It's, it's to bring all, it's to you, as a multiplier, your job is to use all of the intelligence that's available to you, including your own. So it's not, how do I play small so that others can play big? It's, how do I, how do I play big, but play in a way that invites everybody else to play big? And, you know, it, it reminds me of, I, I think one of the most profound shifts I heard was, Magic Johnson talking about an experience he had early on in his career. Let's see if I can share it quickly. Is you know he was this phenomenally talented basketball player. His coach said he's a high school kid. You know, Irvin. He's Irvin Johnson Jr. You know, every time you get the ball and want you to take the shot, he does. He scores a lot of points. Coach loves it. Players love it. They're winning. They're undefeated. But you know, he's scoring like fifty two out of the 54 points they <laughs> the team earned. And you know, this is going on game after game until like one game is done and celebrating um, finished and he notices the faces of the parents you know Scott I know you've got three three boys like 
those parents came to that game not to see Irvin, you know, showboat. You know, it was probably fun for a few games. They kind of wanted to see their kid play. And this young man, Irvin, he notices this and he, he, he reoriented himself and he made this decision that he would use his God-given talent to help everyone on the team be a better player. And it was actually this orientation that earned him this nickname of, of magic. The Michigan sports writer said, you know, he, he raises the level of play of every team that he plays on. Now, here's why I shared that. It's not like he decided he would be most inspirational. Like, okay, I'm going to be on the sidelines and I'm just going to like cheer on my teammates. He played huge. You know, took a lot of shots. He gave it everything he had, but he did it in a way that invited others to do the same. So I'm in no way suggesting people should not have ideas, should not bring energy. It's constantly being aware yeah. of, of how to bring your strength, but to temper it just enough so that there's room for other people's strength to come in. Now, in some organizations, you're going to have to do a little bit of a, a PR job, like to not only manage your team this way, but to make sure that the people who evaluate you also know how you are contributing. And so you might need to talk up not just what you're doing as a manager, but what you're doing as a contributor as well. But that's not leading differently. That's just um, managing up in savvy ways for people who are in organizations like that. Yeah, well said. And if you can't be a multiplier in your organization because of the culture, you might need to find an, a culture or an employer that values that, right? That's not a bad alternative also. Uh, Axel diminishing tendency number five, rapid responder. Before you begin, I had a colleague ask me for some coaching a month ago. And this colleague has another peer in the organization and they were finding that they thought their own brand was suffering because of their own workload and their inability to respond to email requests that were coming into both peers. And then this other person had what they thought was a lighter workload, so they were able to offer ideas and respond quickly. And this one person was fearing that the other person's brand was raising because they had the ability, the bandwidth, to be right there and that they were probably going to eclipse the other person. It was a legitimate concern. Talk about... As rapid responders, how does that diminish those around us? Mm. The rapid responder is the person who jumps on things quickly. And, you know, it's like you get a text, you respond to a text. You get an email, you respond to it. You're aware of a problem, you, you know, you jump on it quickly. And it's also not just problems, it's, it's opportunity. And they think that they're keeping things moving fast. They're, they think that they're building this agile team. But what happens is when the leader is the one who always jumps on it, what do other people learn to do? Like if we all work for, let's say Scott, and Scott's just always quick to respond, even if it's something that it's mine, it's my area, I own it, I'm responsible. If I know Scott's gonna jump on it fast, I just let him do it. He seems like he's having a great time. And so what it does is it erodes accountability and ownership in organizations. I'm not suggesting that people like really slow down and always be deliberate and thoughtful. What I'm suggesting is if you as a manager have given responsibility to someone else, let that person have first right of refusal on on um, acting on it. Like I follow a very simple rule. I've learned to be pretty disciplined about this. And that is anytime I'm aware of something, uh, uh, you know, someone uh, puts a re uh, request in for us to do something for them. I always give the person who's responsible for that 24 hours to respond. So my rule is hands off for 24 hours, you know, let people come back from lunch, come back from their kids, you know, game, do whatever. And then if they're not on it in 24 hours, then I'm all over them. Like, hey, you know what? This is yours. I want you to, to move on it. And it's just about keeping accountability where it's supposed to be. Liz, surprise, surprise. But I struggle with this one because the fact of the matter is, I'll bet you my day is like a lot of leaders' day, right? I probably get 300 emails a day. I probably get another 50 to 75 instant messages on Facebook and LinkedIn, Instagram. And if I wait too long 
that email is now deep into 400, 500 emails later, I'm not going to remember, remember to come back to it. So what I like to do is not be urgency addicted. Okay, I love being urgency addicted. But what I try to do is check things off as they come in because the volume is going to push it out of my sight. How does someone like me that likes to get things done in real time balance the fact with that really is Drew's job? I have high level of confidence Drew will do it. He might slip through because his volume is big. What advice would you give someone like me who's well-intended but the diminishing impact is I'm, I'm, um, I'm hijacking the confidence and the responsibility of someone else. It is, and it creates confusion all through the organization. What I would say to someone like you is be like urgency and important addicted on things that you own. It's almost like taking that two by two matrix, um, you know, that uh, Franklin Covey has has really popularized. The time matrix, right. What's that? The time matrix, right. Yeah, the time matrix. And saying, like, let each person manage their own. Like, don't let leaders jump in and usurp those, like, important things that other people should be doing. You know, particularly the urgent and important. Like, just stay in your own matrix. Unless you really love working around the clock. See, this is one. I actually have a fairly strong opinion about this. I'm going to try not to get on my soapbox, but I just know way too many people who feel strung out because they feel, you know, attached to these devices. They feel like they can never get away from from work. And, And it's like we've got this like nuclear arms race going on where everyone's responding quickly and everyone's jobs are getting blurred. It's like we we need to disarm in some ways and like literally disarm and and have people doing the things that they're responsible for, not stepping into other people's space and creating confusion and frenzy. I think this is actually one of the things that creates so much burnout in the workplace. Liz, four minutes, four final diminishers, minute per piece. Number six is the optimist. And by the way, this is the one that most of the Franklin Covey executive team weighed in, and this was their diminishing capability. We have a very nice culture here, right? Everyone is very positive. Hey, it's Utah. And we have a very positive, optimistic kind of culture. I think increasingly it's served us well, and also there's a diminishing side to that. Talk about the optimist as the axonal diminishing tendency. This is another one that I have a lot of credibility on because I struggle with this. I am a natural-born optimist, so these are hopeful positive can-do people who just so here's the 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 intent they see victory they they really believe in other people like you know what we can do this and so they see upside but what they don't see very well is downside they don't see reality which that's not what's diminishing they don't see the struggle like they become so like, hey, we can do this. We're going to overcome. We're going to get past these obstacles. What they don't see is that other people are in the obstacles. And you end up being so optimistic that you lack empathy. Um, I have learned to just signal the struggle. Is, is to not just say, hey, we can do this. It's, you know, what, what we're doing is hard. We're probably going to make mistakes. We're going to struggle. Like, this is going to be brutal. And I've, I've noticed that when my team sees me signaling the struggle, then they allow me to drip in things like, okay, but you know what? I think we can do this. It's almost like reversing empathy and um, optimism and sure. just putting that empathy first. Yeah, yeah. Liz, number seven is the protector. Your intention is to keep people safe from hardships and difficult for people or politics, but their experience that others don't learn to fend for themselves and are limited in their growth. This one seems fairly intuitive. We find a lot of leaders are well-intended. They want to protect their people from change because this too will pass, or the Albuquerque office will test that. If it makes it to Denver, then fine. What's the downside of being the protector? Well, the downside of protecting people from hardship is that people don't learn to fend for themselves. And you know, if you look at it through a parenting lens, this makes a lot of sense. You see what this plays like when parents are overly protective. It's an overly protective parent who sends their kid off to college and then they fall apart their freshman year. You know, um, 
it, it happens inside organizations like, oh, you know what, I'll do this presentation. It's going to be um, contentious. Oh, you don't want to present to him. He's going to knock your knees out. It's going to be a tough conversation. I'll handle it. And what happens is it creates this uh, significant capability and performance gap between yeah. a leader because they're taking all the learning, all the hardship for themselves, because with hardship comes learning. And, um, you know, those leaders get more and more capable, but their bench weakens. I want to go fast on these, but at the same time, this learning is so prophetic because, uh, surprise, I see myself as the protector and it's well-intended. I have competent people that work with me and report to me. And there are times when I don't want to set them up for failure. I also want the project to get green-lighted. I don't want to have to clean it up later. So it's this sort of delicate balance, isn't it? This tension between letting that person stretch beyond their skills, but not let them diminish their credibility, their chance for promotion in the eyes of the leaders where they might not have the, the political acumen or the savvy to make sure that the presentation is tight and on point or whatever the, the nuances that I see from being an executive and have 25 years. It's, this isn't cut and dry. Uh, it's, it's a real art form. And, you know, I think I, you know, everything I've learned as a leader studying this, writing and teaching is that there's two like key two real key skills to master as a leader is like knowing how to ask the right questions. And the other is knowing how to size challenges. How do you size a challenge so that it's, right. um, it's, it's a little bit intimidating, but it's just barely doable. Like that to me and like getting that nuance just right as an art form. Like some people get it like through observation, the, 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 um, the cheat, the, the lazy way of doing that is simply ask people like, okay, this one's going to involve some obstacles and some hardships. Like how much of it are you wanting to take on? What do you want me to like spot you on? Sort of like as a gymnast model, where do you want me to spot you? And like, where should I just be in the background and coach you? But, you know, get like size that challenge right. And, and then you don't have to protect people. And then you don't have to rescue them either. Liz, number eight is strategist. And when I asked our chairman and CEO, Bob Whitman, which of the nine tendencies he tends to follow, and this was his, and I was actually fairly impressed at his own self-awareness. You described the strategist, whereby your intention is to create a compelling reason to move beyond the status quo, right? It's kind of the, the nature of any storytelling art. Nancy Duarte, Donald Miller will tell you, we are here, we're going there. We are here, we're going there. Their experience, however, is that others defer up or second guess what the leader wants. They stop doing their own strategic thinking. Talk to the strategist. Uh, yeah, you know, I think people just get big thinking lazy around these leaders. They paint such a compelling vision of the future that there's none of that strategic thinking left to do. It's like, oh, they do the strategy, I do the execution. And, and so people get stuck in silos. It, it's more like more of a multiplier approach. This would be to frame a vision. Like here's sort of a picture I see, let me frame it, but let me leave a lot of holes in there so other people have to come in and contribute. Because you want, particularly in times of uncertainty and times of rapid change, all the things that we're living through now, you know, strategy is not a static um, exercise like what you want is you want everyone on the team to have strategic thinking muscles that can be exercised in the moment like you want commander's intent but then you want your people to be able to be agile like okay this is fundamentally what bob wants but i'm going to go in and figure out what the you know strategic thinking needs to be in the moment liz talk to the last one the perfectionist Oh boy, if you are a perfectionist, you already, people, if someone is a perfectionist, they already know that, but they might not. And then they know, you know, how good it feels to get something just exactly perfectly right. They may not know what it feels like to work for them because that feels different. You know, like while they see an A plus grade in the making, what other people experience is, is getting a failing grade every day. Um, I hear this a lot. People say of their diminishers, nothing I did was good enough. I mean, let's just pause for a second. 
Is that because they're Catholic or because they're working for a diminishing leader? (laughs) I say that as a Catholic. (laughs) I know I'm feeling you on that. Um, Yeah, it's like, what's it like when you go to work every day knowing that your work isn't measuring up, that it's getting redone, that your boss is like having to put all the final touches on it? Like, first of all, it doesn't feel good. But two, you learn to, to give incomplete work. Like, oh, well, you know, my boss is going to redo it anyway, so I'll just give her something that's kind of half-baked. Think about the cycle that that perpetuates, because everyone's like, the perfectionist is like, man, this is half-baked. I need to redo it. Like, she likes redoing it. I'll give her stuff half-baked. I, 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 I'll offer a remedy on this one. It's one I heard from a partner at a law firm. He had read the book, and he said, you know what? I, I did one really smart thing when I became partner. You know, of course, lawyers are probably known for perfectionist tendencies. He said, I made a decision that I would only correct people's work if it was legally inaccurate. But, you know, if I could say it better, write it better, he said, I left all of that alone. I let people do their work. I only corrected it if it was legally inaccurate. And I think there in there is a good metaphor for how we all should be approaching, you know, um, managing others and dealing with perfectionist tendencies. Liz, if my memory serves me correct, there are only two interviews in our entire two-year series that have gone for an hour. One was with Hiram Smith, who, as you know, was our co-founder of the Franklin Quest company that merged with Franklin Covey. He passed about nine months ago from a very quick uh, um, illness. And uh, to Hiram, I hope you're doing well um, up there because you had a profound impact on me. And your interview is the other, Liz that has gone a full hour because your book, Multipliers, like Dr. Covey's, I think is one of those rare leadership books where you need to read it every year and reread it because of the gravity of the content. Your content was so remarkable. As I mentioned earlier, we've actually created it into a one-day work session, live, live online, blended learning, lots of great facilitation tips and tools, videos, exercises, evaluations, an actual game board to kind of figure out how to move around toward multiplying uh, more in your leadership style. I think the four big ideas around becoming a multiplier in the course are ask better questions, look for genius, offer bigger challenges, and create space for others. End us with a little bit of wisdom around what does it mean to create space for others? When you are becoming a multiplier, how are you creating space for others? Well, I think, you know, it's around creating space in interactions, like sometimes playing fewer chips yourself, maybe taking up less talk time and giving more space for others. But it's also creating intellectual space, meaning people have space to to think, space to disagree, space to make mistakes. You know, one very simple thing I've learned to do, it's maybe the simplest thing that I've learned to do that's had the biggest multiplying effect on my team is I have learned not to surprise people with idea sessions. I I learned to send out agendas in advance. If here are the things I want people to weigh in on, I send those questions out. I realize not everyone like wants to like think in the moment that there are like introverts who want to have quiet time and space to think through something. And I give people time-based space so that they can come prepared and they don't feel like they have to hold back because there's a few like fast, quick-witted people are like, do-do-do-do-do, taking up all the talk time. So give people space in meetings, give people space to disagree with you. Um, You know, so many of these things, because I'm also a parent, I see it through that lens is, you know, as a, a good parent gives their kids space not just space to play, but space to be different, space to experiment, space to learn, space to talk to you and tell you what's really going on. I think a good leader does the same thing. Liz, I feel like I've been in an hour-long leadership therapy session. And as you know, I have called you on occasion after hours for parenting advice because you're kind of a couple of years ahead of me with my young boys. Thank you for your friendship. Thanks for your intellectual property. Franklin Covey is honored to be partnered with you to bring multipliers to all of our All Access Pass members. And we also can uh, continue to have clients teach it with a Franklin Covey consultant on site. You win the virus 
has subsided and we're all vaccinated, you will be back on the road giving keynote speeches around the world. Thank you for your time today. I hope you and your family are safe this summer and we're delighted to be associated with you and the Wiseman Group. Scott, it's such a pleasure to talk with you, but to also to learn with you. I feel like this is um, a set of ideas that we're building and continuing to learn about together. Well, you, you know, you've got, you've got one perpetual learn. customer right here, always, unfortunately. <laughs> Thank you, Liz. Thank you for joining us. A long session. I took it long intentionally because I think this content is so profound and applicable for leaders at all level, levels. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Pick up the book, visit franklincovey.com, not just to register for our podcast, but to learn more about how you can bring the multipliers content into your organization through Franklin Covey's All Access Pass. And we'll see you back here next week with a new guest.